in mansions of glory and endless delight. Look forward to that day <laughs> when you wake up to five inches of snow. I do. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 is where we're going to begin uh, this morning. We're going to be all over, so keep your Bible thumb, page-turning thumb, oiled and ready. I do have some notes in the back, if you like. Uh, we have a pretty simple outline this morning. First chapter 1, I'll read the first uh, seven verses. We'll pray and we'll, we'll jump in. It's always just a joy to be here with you, and thank you, Pastor Ken, for the invite. First John 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. We'll stop right there for this morning. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege of gathering with your people and singing songs to your name. Thank you for those who have helped us sing this morning. And now help us as we open your word, meet with us during these moments, conform us to the image of Christ. And may we say from the depths of our heart as we spend time with you this morning, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A good and competent preacher would introduce his sermon with a funny story to sort of capture your attention. Uh, and being neither good nor competent, I'm just going to introduce by lecturing for a few moments, as a seminary professor might, on the way we study the Bible, and that's going to then segue into our treatment of the text. When you read the Bible and when you begin to study the Bible, you become rather quickly aware that with the exception of uh, most of the book of Romans and some other scattered portions of other books of the Bible, the Bible is not strictly a theological treatise. It's rather a collection of history and poetry, communications from God to a specific man or a specific group of people like we find in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. You find written correspondence, uh, letters between men speaking for God and those who they're writing to. That's what we find in the letters of Paul or the letters of John, which we're studying this morning. And so in that sense, the Bible is not written 
firsthand personally to you or to me, and it's not written as an encyclopedia of various theological positions. It's, it's written by men of God inspired by the Spirit of God who are they're going about their business of helping their fellow countrymen or they're helping their brothers in Christ or they're recording history for future generations or in the case of the Psalms, they're expressing in a poetic uh, singing way their thoughts and emotions uh, in the given situation that they find themselves in. And that means that when we study the Bible in order to sort of construct a good and a true understanding of God, a good and true understanding of ourselves, a good and true understanding of the world that we find ourselves in, in a sense, what we have to do is, is reverse engineer the mindset and the worldview of those writing the Bible. Do you know what reverse engineering is? Re- reverse engineering is, is when... Uh, I've heard this happens in communist countries. Uh, they don't like to spend as much as we charge for uh, certain pieces of technology. And so they will buy a television set and uh, something like this and take it all apart and find out every single part that's in it and then just make all the parts. And, and so, so they take something, tear it all apart, and then reconstruct it. That's reverse engineering. Engineering is saying, I want to build a television set, and I think I need one of these parts or one of these parts, and, and you sort of build it in your mind before you build it up front. Reverse engineering is taking something, tearing it all down, figuring out the little tiny parts, and then putting it all back together. When we're studying the Bible, in a sense, what we're doing is we're reverse engineering the mindset and the worldview of those who are writing the Bible, and then we, we sort of distill propositional or doctrinal truth out of the things that they say. For instance, and, and this is, don't let your eyes glaze over as I talk about history that is 400 years old, but when the Westminster divines set about to write their catechism, they began with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer comes back, you know, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, here's, here's men of the 17th century who are really serious about the things of God. They're really serious about the Bible. They're probably far more serious about instructing their children in the things of God than most of us are, to, to our shame. But the very first thing that they teach their kids to ask is a question the Bible doesn't directly ask. And they give an answer that it doesn't come directly out of the Bible. It's not a phrase that you find in the Bible. And so what, what they did was they point us to a handful of places in which we can get little words, little phrases, little hints that the writers of the Bible actually do believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, even if the Bible doesn't exactly say that. Does that make sense? That's not something unique to the Westminster divines. Jesus and Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the other New Testament writers actually used the Old Testament that way as well. One day Jesus and His disciples were walking on the Sabbath, and they were hungry. And so the disciples grabbed a handful of grain. You remember, they were walking by a field, and so they grabbed a handful of grain, and they rubbed it together, and they blew away the chaff, and they began to eat the grain. And the Pharisees started picking on them. They said, hey, what you're doing is you're combining, you're threshing, and it's the Sabbath day, and you can't do that. And if you remember what Jesus did, Jesus took them back to an Old Testament story where David and his men 
were hungry, and the only thing that there was to eat was bread that was, it didn't belong to them. In fact, it was, it was part of the worship of God, and it was dedicated for the worship of God. But because of the extenuating circumstances, David and his men actually ate the bread. They, they, they needed some bread, and here's some bread. And, and so even though it wasn't their bread, and it was meant to be used in worship, they ate it, and God was actually okay with that. And so Jesus distills truth out of that story of David, and, and helps us understand something about the way God views uh, this particular bread here, and he takes those truths and he translates them into the, the rationale for his disciples being able to uh, you know, grind up a little grain and eat it on the Sabbath day. This is also why we believe in the Trinity. Even though the biblical authors never mention the Trinity, they never say anything directly about it, it's a core belief that we hold, and without the Trinity, frankly, the rest of our beliefs begin to fall apart one by one until you're just really left in a religion that is no way Christian, and certain sects of religion have denied the Trinity, and they wind up entirely unchristian. How can we be so certain that we have to believe something the Bible doesn't directly address? Well, if you want to prove the Trinity from the Bible, you have to take words and phrases and lines of thought from multiple places all over the Bible, and, and in a sense, you reverse engineer that doctrine in order to understand that even though the Apostle Paul never said God is uh, three persons in one essence, you won't find that in the Bible, but, but we can say without a shadow of a doubt that Paul believed that. And we'll realize that the Trinity is so critical to understanding the God of the Bible that if we deny it, we actually come up with a different God. And it affects the entire way we read the Bible. The doctrine of salvation is the same thing. If somebody says to you, what must I do to be saved? You might do something like take them down the Romans road. Uh, that was very popular anyway, 20, 25 years ago. And what that is, is it's a, it's a handful, a smattering of verses taken from here and there in Romans that, sort, that help answer the question, what must I do, what must I believe in order to be saved? Because there's no one overarching sentence in the Bible that answers that question directly. So we just pull it from, from here and there. Now, I say all that to say that when we read the Bible, we're getting a window into a world in which we are not the central character. And and the questions that we ask are not always directly answered. They're answered, but we have to work at them. We have to immerse ourselves in a, a different worldview, a different mindset. First John was written by the Apostle John, and when he wrote it, he didn't have you or me specifically in mind. He didn't have necessarily Providence Community Church in 2017 directly on the forefront of his mind, is, is what I'm saying. John is writing to some friends of him. His, perhaps he's writing to a particular group of people who met together in a church similar to the way we meet this morning. But as John writes, we get a feel for how he thinks. We get a feel for what's important to him. We, we get a feeling of how he thinks about his, his friends. And as long as we're kind of tracking in our mind with John, so long as we sort of think along the same lines that he does, or, or if you will, so long as we have the same worldview John has, uh, we just kind of read along and enjoy it because John writes things like we might write, God is love, he will write. And we'd say, yeah, I knew it. I, I know that's true. 
We would write something like that. John writes, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We're tracking with that. Yes, that's how I understand the Bible. That's how I understand the God who is love. But as I was reading through 1 John a couple weeks ago, uh, something shocked me. It was, it was a single word, and actually it was a single letter that was, uh, I think, missing. The word that I wanted us to kind of focus in on for a moment is the word our in verse 4. The word our in verse 4. And the, the letter that I think is probably missing if I were to write the Bible is the letter Y. I would have expected that our to be your in other words, I would have expected John to write, these things we write so that your joy may be made complete. That, that frankly, makes a lot of sense. John is a servant of Jesus. John is a servant of the church. And John is writing in order that these people and us, by extension, are going to have a fuller, clearer picture of the work that Jesus did on the cross. They're going to have a clearer, fuller picture of what being a Christian looks like. And when that happens, they will be happier people. Their, your joy will be complete. And after all, isn't that what the Bible does? It tells us about God and it helps us know how to be happy in Him. Does that make sense? In fact, without getting into uh, uh, an ac- academic discussion about the work of textual critics... It seems so obvious that the word our in verse 4 should read your, the our joy should be your joy, that somewhere early on in the, the copying of the New Testament, some scribe saw that word our and said, that's crazy, John would never write that, and he switched it to the word your. Your joy may be made complete. And that's why if you have a King James Bible or a New King James, you actually have the word your instead of our. And I'm not going to dive into that but I thought I would at least mention it. What does it mean that John wrote these things we write so that our joy may be made complete? Well, in a simple sense, it means this. John's joy isn't complete. Is that fair enough? There's a sense in which John says, I could be more joyful. And what would increase your joy, John? What would fill up your joy? Well, that's in verse Three, what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. In other words, what's going to make John's joy complete or fill up John's joy is fellowship with those to whom he's writing. Now here's what that does for me. This, this opens a window into John's thinking that, that tells me that my brothers and sisters in Christ and me having fellowship with them is probably way more important to John than it is to me. In other words, John isn't just writing so that he can help these other people on their merry way to heaven. He's writing because he's never going to be quite as full of joy as he could be unless he's connected to these brothers and sisters in gospel fellowship. One of the, one of the things that we live with in 2017 as children of the Reformation, which was a massive reaction against the Roman Catholic Church, and as children of modernism with its emphasis on individuality, we, we live with a, with a worldview that says, in the words of a song that I used to sing as a child, 
And now it's Jesus and me for each tomorrow, for every heartache and every sorrow. I know that I can depend upon my newfound friend. And so to the end, it's Jesus and me. Or I grew up singing the old hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. In a sense, that's true. I, I really love, and, and I don't want you to think I'm disparaging the song. I love the song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. But because I love that song, that's also why I assume John is writing so that your joy may be made complete. In other words, he's writing so that your joy in Jesus may be made complete. He, what is he doing dragging himself into this? That's the question I ask. John might say, hallelujah, all you have is Christ. You don't need me, you don't need anybody else, and I don't really need you. But what that ultimately does, that sort of mindset, what that does is it makes the church and it makes other believers sort of window dressing on the story of my life with Jesus. So when I read John writing in verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made full, I say, I say come on, John, aren't you diminishing the all-satisfying nature of Jesus? I mean, how, really, how could John dare to suggest that his joy is somehow incomplete apart from fellowship with those to whom he is writing? Come on, John, isn't Jesus enough? Of course, we have to answer, Jesus is enough. We have enough Bible in us to know that that's true. We can't say otherwise. The Apostle Paul, I count all things lost that I might know Christ. He doesn't say, I count all things lost so that I might know Christ and some other people too. But John actually does say what he says, and we have to make something of it. Now, there's a couple other words here that I, that I think, uh, tongue-in-cheek, John has gotten backwards. Look at verse 3 of, verse, of chapter 1. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with, and, and, and here... Uh, if John was a really good American individualistic Protestant, he would write, we write these things so that you may have fellowship with Jesus. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, so you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever urged someone to Gospel obedience, you need to come to Christ. You need to obey the gospel so that you may have fellowship with me. Isn't that astounding that John would say something like that? Here's the other goof up that I think John makes. Goof up, quote unquote. Verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, and again, what he should write, it seems, is he should write, we have fellowship with him. After all, that's true enough, right? If we walk in the light, the light, verse 5, is God. Naturally, if we're walking in the light, we have fellowship with him because we're walking in him. But what he actually writes, again, is if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And again, this is such a surprising twist of terminology that some of the greatest theologians have looked at that phrase, one another, and said, God is the one another. But the only reason I think you'd actually say that the one another is God is because you really don't expect John to say, walk in the light so you have fellowship with one another. The reason we walk in the light is because that's where God is. And at the end of the day, who really cares if anybody is walking with us or not? Again, I used to sing the song, Though no one join me, still I will follow. This dogged determination, I will follow Jesus even if I'm all alone. Well, John apparently cares if anyone is walking with us or not. Or John assumes that somebody will be walking with us. So there's three instances in the opening verses of John, uh, 1 John where John says something surprising, at least to my mind. Verse 3, when he says fellowship with us. Verse 4, when he says our joy. And again in verse 7, when he says fellowship with one another. Now here's what, here's what, I, here's what I'm thinking. See if you agree with this. If these sort of words and phrases are surprising to me, it's because I'm not thinking quite like John is thinking. I expect John to say something different, so I'm not quite tracking with him. Me and John's worldview is apparently somewhat at odds. John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is placing an incredibly high value on Christian fellowship. Now, we haven't defined fellowship yet, but let's at least say right here that it's pretty clear to me that when John uses that Greek word koinonia, or fellowship, he means probably far more than hanging out in the narthex for half an hour drinking coffee, talking about what you did last week. He doesn't mean less than that. But to use verse 7 as an example, walking in the light as he himself is in the light must mean fellowship that is deeper than that. Okay? Deeper than sort of a casual friendship. I think one of the reasons that church attendance is generally declining in our nation is that, and, and our nation has been immersed in gospel preaching. It's, it's, it's everywhere and it's readily accessible if you can't find it, thanks to technology. But one of the reasons that churches are, Church attendance is declining and people are abandoning the churches is this sort of mentality that other Christians are more or less icing on my spiritual cake. They're really not a part of the cake itself. That is, at the end of the day, you can sort of take it or leave it. You won't find this in the words of Scripture, but you will find it near the lips of almost every American. I can worship God in nature, which really only means that I can have a complete and full relationship with God apart from any relationship with any believers in the church. And because that's the case, there's really no sense of urgency or there's no sense of compulsion for us to be any part of a local church. And, and, and that leaves, in the, the, that leaves the, the church in this rather unfortunate position of having to come up with other reasons to sort of justify its own existence beyond just being the fellowship of God's people. God doesn't really require you to go to church, but 
but come anyway and we'll try to make it worth your while. That's kind of the, what the church is left with. And, and it's easy for that mentality to even creep into my own thinking, especially when just a couple of clicks away on my phone, I have access to preachers who might be far more eloquent and far more profound than my own pastor, who preach at my convenience, or I might have access to studio-quality music that's far better than I can find at any church in rural Minnesota. On top of it all, I can hear the music and the preaching, and I don't have to talk to anybody. I have my own private relationship with God. And and unless you can convince me that you can offer me something that enhances my private relationship with God, I really don't need you. So what I'm going to try to do with the time we have remaining is sort of unpack the mindset that, that John must have that would lead him to write things like we find in these verses. And in order to do that, I'm going to set before you three propositions, try to prove them from the Scriptures. We'll apply them, and we'll be done. So if you have your sheet, you have have three lines on here. And here's the first proposition. And that is this, union with Jesus can never be divorced from union with brothers. Union with Jesus can never be divorced from union with brothers. The Apostle Paul says this, If any man be... In Christ, he is a new creation. Paul loves the phrase, in Christ. That doctrine of union with Christ is a wonderfully sweet doctrine. It, It simply says that those who come to the Father by faith in Jesus are united to Jesus. Now here's here's what this means. Let me expound on this for a little bit. Being united to Jesus does not mean the same as standing beside Jesus. Okay? Being in Jesus is different than being next to Jesus. Let me say it this way. All of us perhaps wrestle with a sense of fear at times about standing before a holy God. Because even if we're not fully aware of all of our sinfulness, we're at least aware of some of it. And if you're like me, that's bad enough. But union with the Father, or union with Christ, means that when we stand before the Father, we don't stand before God next to Jesus. We stand before Him in Jesus. And that means that the Father could no more reject or condemn those in Christ than He could reject or condemn Jesus Christ Himself because they are united the Father would essentially have to amputate pieces off of Jesus to throw away those who are found in Christ. Positively, it means this. It means that the love that the Father has for the Son, He has for those who are united to the Son. I'll say that again. The love that the Father has for Jesus is the same love He has for those who are united to Jesus. Because of the incredible work of the Lord Jesus on the cross and because of the incredible power and grace of God in justification, we as believers are united to Jesus without diminishing the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Last year when we were 
uh, when I was here, we talked about Ephesians 5 and Paul's illustration of marriage and, and the incredible reality that the Lord Jesus, when he takes the church for his bride, he doesn't marry down. She's a fitting bride. She is holy and blameless. She is without spot or wrinkle. So the father loves his son, but he also loves his son's bride, not just for the sake of his son, but he loves the son's bride because she has been made incredibly lovely. Now Ephesians 1 uses this sort of language. It tells us that the church is the body of Jesus. That's, again, union language. Is your head united to your body? I hope so. I hope you didn't leave your head at home this morning. I hope you didn't leave your body home this morning. Pretty tightly united. But that's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 1 to describe the relationship between Jesus and his, his church, his, his people. John Calvin says on this point, this is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, until Jesus is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation is it? It is for us, Calvin continues, to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete. So in this sense, Jesus considers himself in some way incomplete until he is fully and finally united to his people. That's union with Christ. And every believer has that. But not only are believers united to Christ, they are united to each other by bonds that are just as inseparable and just as powerful. Now Paul has an extended discourse on this in 1 Corinthians 12, but here's the summation of what he teaches there in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul says, Now you are Christ's body, that's union with Christ, and individually members of it. In other words, you are not by yourself the body of Jesus. You're an individual member of it, but not the whole thing. It's not, as though, it's not as though Jesus is the head and I am the body. It's more like Jesus is the head and I'm a hand. You see the difference? A head and a hand do not a person make, do not a body make. So all believers together make up the full body. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.25, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of each other. Notice, he doesn't say we are friends with each other or we stand beside one another, but he says we are members of one another. Romans 12.5, We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. <clears throat> So if union with Christ is a reality for you and you stand in Christ, then union with other believers is also a reality because there is only one Jesus. You don't have your own private Jesus to be in union with. If you're in union with Jesus and, and if the Father would no more separate you from Jesus than he would amputate Jesus' arm, you're in that same union with others who are in union with Jesus. You can no more be divorced from them than Jesus could be divorced from his leg. 
And for Paul and for John, this isn't sort of accidental or second-degree union by default. Union of believers to Christ and union to each other is clearly one of the central themes of the gospel. The gospel is not only about uniting us to Christ, it's also about uniting us to each other in Christ. Maybe you've heard something said like this, if only one person would believe, Jesus would have come and died for that person. And and it's a nice sentiment, but it's really foreign to the Bible. The Bible says things like this in Titus 2, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Not, Not to purify for himself persons for his own possession, but a people. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. James said to the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Again, not persons for his name, though the people is made up of individual persons. But God's plan was to take a people from his name. Or Peter most famously perhaps quotes the Old Testament saying, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, Jesus died for more than gathering up a collection of people whose only relationship is to himself. He he died in order to to create that union, yes, but also to gather his people into a single unified nation or bride or, or body. There's only one body, there's only one nation, there's only one bride. You cannot be united to Jesus and not be united to those who are also in Jesus. And, and, and just as our union with Jesus, our union with Jesus tells us that we are entirely dependent on him. If you become united to a head and the head is severed from you, you're dead, right? That, that only makes sense. We're, we're dependent on Christ. But in a very real way, Jesus has also united us to each other because we need each other. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 20. Now there are many members, but one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, Paul says, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem weaker, are necessary. Now, when Paul says something is necessary, do you really think he means it's actually preferable or it's actually optional? Or does he actually think it means necessary? Let me confess something before you. That as as a leader in the church, in my church, I'm far more given to think of other believers as projects, as consumers of my teaching, or maybe on my worst days to think of them as drains of my energy. I'm far more prone to think of other people in that way than to think of them as necessary to my spiritual life. But Paul says, even the weakest are necessary. 
When we begin to understand the significance of union, not only union with Jesus, but union with each other, maybe we can, maybe we can begin to understand why John would say things like in verse 3 of chapter 1, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Because fellowship with us is really synonymous with fellowship with Jesus. John's going to say so much going on in verse 3. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. But John is not willing to say uh, you have fellowship with Jesus without mentioning and and even saying first that your fellowship is with, with us. He's not going to let that point be dropped. Because Christ is the point at which we unite we who are united to Christ are united with each other. And we can no more be divorced from each other than we can be divorced from Christ. You're doing well. Hang with me. Let me show you this in a negative sense from John's pen. Here in 1 John, you have this in front of you. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. <clears throat> 1 John 2.18 says this, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many uh, Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They, verse 19, they, they is the Antichrist. The Antichrists went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are, that they all are not of us. Now, the logic here is very simple, if frightening. And if you put faces and names in here, uh, it's frankly offensive and very judgmental. And, and you have to remember that in John's case, people didn't have the option for leaving one church for another down the street. Our, our church situation now has complications that John didn't have to deal with. But the fact remains here in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, that those who abandoned their brothers proved that they were never united to Christ. Because if they had been united to Christ, they would never have divorced their brothers. That is to say, those who abandon the people of Christ are abandoning Christ, and vice versa. That's the logic here. So that's proposition number one. Union with Jesus can never be divorced from union with brothers. The other two will go faster, I promise. Proposition number two, love for Jesus can never be divorced from love for brothers. Love for Jesus can never be divorced from love for brothers. Or you could say it this way. Love for Jesus is proportional and equal to my love for my brother. That's a big statement. Love for Jesus is equal to and proportional to my love for my brother. Let me set about to try to prove that. You have chapter 2 in front of you. Look at verse 9 and 10 of 1 John. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Say you're in the light, hate your brother, you're actually in the darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. If you love your brother, you abide in the light. And if, so he sort of says the same thing twice, but if... It's not enough to say the same thing twice. He said it a third time in verse 11. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That is to say, 
brother hating equals darkness walking. Okay? Brother hating equals darkness walking. If you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. If you love your brother, you're walking in the light. John isn't done. He's going to press this point really hard. Look ahead to chapter 3 and verse 10. John says in 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's not a surprise there. That shouldn't shock you. If you don't practice righteousness, you're not of God. That shouldn't be surprising to you. But this one might be, nor the one who does not love his brother. To me, that seems less obvious. Okay? If you don't love your brother, you're not of God. That's perfectly normal in John's head. Down to verse 14 of chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Here's a great way to be assured of your salvation. Ask yourself, do I love the brothers? Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That sounds something like John heard directly from the lips of Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. Murderers don't inherit the kingdom. Okay? Um, murderers don't love God. Move on down to chapter 4 and verse 20. <clears throat> 4 verse 20, John says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Again, very blunt. John is not pulling any punches here. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why would you say that, John? Well, he continues, The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, this is a really interesting statement, and, and I wrestle with it a little bit uh, for this reason. Why not? Why can't you love God and hate your brother? It's frankly not that difficult. It doesn't seem like it's that difficult anyway, because God is lovely and my brother isn't. It's easy enough. <laughs> Jesus is easier to love than my brother, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. My brother is a pain in the rear end, this I know too. So how can you, how can you put those two on the same plane? Especially when Jesus is so lovable and my brother is not. Now I said that love for Jesus is equal and proportional to love for brother and vice versa. <clears throat> But I didn't say, and John would never say, that Jesus and brother are equally lovely because they're not. Read 1 Corinthians. Paul gets frustrated with the Corinthians. He almost gives up hope on the Galatians. And frustration and despair might strain your love. But certainly Paul didn't have any feelings of frustration or despair with Jesus that would strain that relationship. So here's why I think John would say, love for Jesus and love for brother, are inextricably linked and equal and proportional to each other. Bear with me. I'll try, to, I'll try to make this simple. you got 4 verse 21 in front of you. Look at it. John says, This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So here's a brother love command. If you love God, you should love your brother. Now look at 5.1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now that's sort of like John 3.16 basic. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Okay? Uh, here's some 
I don't want to get really scientific, but two children with the same father are brothers. Okay, Two boys, same father, they're brothers. That's science for the day. <clears throat> Those who believe in Jesus are born of God. Born of God is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? It's new birth, it's regeneration, it's, it's springing up of a new life that wasn't there before. It includes affections that weren't there before. One of the things that happens when you're born again is you have a love for God. You can't be a believer and hate God. That's hardly a disputable point. The Spirit of God himself implants a love for God in you. Those who are born of God love God and... Those who love the Father, verse 1, love the one born of Him. So the same Holy Spirit who creates father love also creates brother love. But brother love is also commandment keeping. Keep that in mind. And commandment keeping is how we express our love for God. If that's confusing, let me, let me say it this way. Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the primary command Jesus has in mind is the command to love one another. So, we can say it this way. If you love me, love one another. Well, what if you don't keep Jesus' commandments? What if you don't love one another? Well, you don't love him. It's, it's really that simple. And so that's how we can say that love for Jesus is equal and proportional to our love for our brother. Or to go back to 1 John 5, now verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So loving God is keeping God's commandments. Keeping God's commandments is loving our brother. That's how you get this direct line, this direct link between loving God and loving our brother. I think that's why John is going to say back in chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's, it's utterly inconceivable in the mind of John that one could walk in the light and not have fellowship with the rest of the body of Jesus. John doesn't think that way. Fellowship with one another is, is a result, is as much a result of the work of the gospel as fellowship with Jesus is. Now, very quickly, just so I don't leave you thinking love one another means never offend each other or be nice to each other or uh, if, if a brother doesn't like you, you've, you've failed and you're probably not a Christian because that's a very real temptation and if you haven't felt that, you will. What, is, what, do, what do John and Jesus mean when they say love one another? Let me boil it down for you in this simple statement that is helpful for me. Love one another means this, love at a net loss. Do you, know, do you know what a net loss is? Many of you are in business or self-employed, and you understand this. Net loss means that when you, when you total up your expenses and your income, your expenses are higher than your income and you lose money. <clears throat> For the kids, it means you spend $10,000 to go out and, and buy a lot of really cool stuff, and later that day you sell it for $3,000, and so you've just lost $7,000. Here's how John expresses that, this idea, loving at a net loss. Chapter 3 and verse 17. <clears throat> Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. 
Let us not love with word or tongue. That means don't just say, I love you. Saying, I love you, is, is very cheap. It doesn't cost you a lot, and it might gain you something. Tell somebody you love them. They might be nice to you. They might be affectionate to you. It didn't really cost you much, and you got a good return. That's, that's a pretty good way to go. But giving your stuff to somebody who doesn't have stuff to give back to you is potentially very, very expensive. Look, so chapter 3, verse 17, you've got stuff. Your brother doesn't have stuff. And, and if you will not meet his needs, the love of God doesn't abide in you. That is, if you are not willing to love at a net loss, you're not loving. That's, that's, if you are, that's what John calls at the end of verse 17, the love of God abiding in him. Those who are willing to love at a net loss. Here's how Jesus expresses the same idea. You know this from John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. So the greatest love lays down your life, which costs everything. And what do you get back? Well, actually nothing, because you're dead. You can't give anything to a dead guy. So laying down your love for your friend is the ultimate net loss. But Jesus says it's also the greatest love. And of course, that's the love of God. Jesus is going to lay down his life for his friends. And really... At the end of the day, whose life is worth more? Jesus' life or, let's just say, the accumulated value of all the lives that Jesus is going to redeem? Just do a cost analysis. Which is more valuable, the single life of Jesus or everybody else who believes combined? And we have to answer, the life of Jesus is infinitely more valuable. So Jesus loves at a net loss, at least on the other side of, of the grave. And that's what we should do. So this is, this is love, not just being nice, not necessarily being not offensive, but loving at a net loss. So when you do this business of self-analysis, you shouldn't do that constantly, but you do have a biblical directive to do it regularly. This is what you ask. Do I love at a net loss? What have I been willing to, to lose for the sake of my brother? And, and if the answer is, well, nothing, you really have good reason to question whether or not you truly love the real Jesus. And so I should mention here, it, it is actually possible to love a made-up Jesus and hate your brother. I think that happens more than we care to admit. It's possible to have your own private Jesus. You just need to realize he's not the real Jesus and won't save you. It's possible to love your idea of Jesus and hate your brother but your idea of Jesus doesn't save you. And one last clarification on this point. Remember, the Bible is not saying love your brother so that you can love Jesus. What, it's, what it means is truly love Jesus and you will love your brother. Brother love is the, the immediate and brother love is the necessary effect of love for Jesus not the cause. So don't get those two flip-flopped. Number three, joy in God can never be divorced from joy in brothers. Joy in God can never be divorced from joy in brothers. Let's finally get back to that one missing letter that got us all started down this winding road. Verse four. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If we understand that union with Christ means union with our brothers, if we understand that love for God means love for brothers, 
then maybe we can begin to understand why joy in God can never be divorced from joy in our brothers. Let me take you to 1 Thessalonians and show you how this expressed itself from the pen of the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now this is an extended text, and we won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want you to at least see it, because 1 Thessalonians is a rather brief book, and, and he spends a lot of time on this. Being in verse 17, Paul writes this, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Here in verse 19, Paul asks a question which, in Paul's mind, this is a rhetorical question, but he actually does give the answer, and I'm glad he gives the answer because I, frankly, got his rhetorical question wrong, and if you get rhetorical questions wrong, you're really bad, and that would have been me. What is our hope or joy or crown of, uh, of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? What is our hope and joy and crown? It's Jesus, duh. It's the gospel. It's the love of God. If any man boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me. I am the Lord. But if we were to say, Paul, what is your hope? Here he says, it's, it's my brothers in Thessalonica. What is your joy? It's the Thessalonians. What is your crown of boasting? Paul writes, is it not you? Verse 20, who is Paul's glory and joy? Isn't it Jesus? Yes, of course, in the ultimate sense it is, but it's still not what he writes. He says, you are our glory and joy. Then when you go into chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about how he sent Timothy up to Thessalonica to help ground and establish and, and teach this young church so they, they wouldn't be carried off course and they wouldn't abandon the gospel and, and there's no cell phones and there's no texting and there's no Facebook. And you get the feeling from chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, that Paul is a little nervous and agitated and he's worried about the church up there. And finally in verse 6, Timothy comes back and, and Paul says in verse 6 that Timothy has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly and we want Paul to, or we would be spiritual and say, you always think highly of Jesus. But that's not what he says. You always think kindly of us, longing to see, and again, wouldn't you say, longing to see Jesus? But, but the Thessalonians are longing to see Paul, just as Paul and his companions are longing to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. you know what the negative of verse 8 sounds like? It sounds something like this. If you were not standing firm in the Lord, it would kill me. Paul's life was hard. Paul's life was painful. He says as much in verse 7. Distress and affliction are the words he uses there. But hearing of the faith of the Thessalonian church brought him comfort. Paul found verse 8 life in the life of the Thessalonians. I think that's that same heart that's beating in the breast of John when he writes, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And as John's joy is, is incomplete so long as those he's writing to are in some way unstable in the gospel. 
Let me give you three quick points of application. You've been so patient, we'll be done. Three quick points of application. Number one, resist the temptation to find your church identity in anything but love for Jesus and love for each other. I mentioned this before, but let me just reiterate it. We live in a day in church history when the term target audience actually has some sort of meaning and some sort of hearing. So often a church has a primary, primary identity as being a hip church or a diverse church or a contemporary church or a right-wing church or a progressive church and on and on and on and on it goes. And maybe, maybe to some degree that's almost impossible to avoid. But as much as lies within you, work to make the primary point of your identity, your union in Jesus, your union to each other, not in, not in union to ideology, uh, demographic, not in union in a certain kind of lifestyle. All those things have to be pushed into the background because if we don't consciously put forth Christ and put all those other things behind us, we'll never really appreciate the, the fullness of the blessing of being first and foremost in union with each other because we are first and foremost in union with the Lord Jesus. Jesus said it this way, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think of so many times when even I have thought, people will know I'm a Christian because I'm so happy. And that may be true enough. But happiness isn't what Jesus said would mark his disciples. The mark of a true church isn't a happy church. Though that's all well and good. But the mark of... Jesus' disciples is those who love each other at, at a net loss. So you open up the book of Acts and see what the first church is doing, and they're doing radical things like selling property and giving all the money to the poor in the church. And we could probably explain that away as not something that should be normative, but what you can't deny is that they loved each other at a net loss. Secondly, resist the continual temptation that I face, and so probably you do too, resist the continual temptation to think we can do the Christian life without each other. You need each other. The members of the body are necessary. And lastly, give and get joy from each other. Give and get joy from each other. Complete your beloved pastor and my dear friend's joy by being attentive and obedient to the word of God. Complete your own joy as you help each other and watch each other grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Make these gatherings of yours continue to be a deep well of joy from which everyone can drink freely. Don't settle for cheap joy. Enjoy the common goodness of God that, and the happiness that comes. You live in a beautiful place, beautiful neighborhood, fun activities. I'm not suggesting we become so spiritual we look down our noses like things like fishing and shopping, those are wonderful things, but I'm saying there's a deep joy that, that nobody can experience except those who are in union with Christ and in union with each other. I think that's why Paul says in, verse, in Philippians 2 to the Philippians, make my joy complete. I mean, what a bold thing to say. Can you imagine somebody standing up and saying something like that? Good job, you hung in there. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for... For John's mindset of the intimate connection of union with Christ, union with each other, 
love for Christ, love for each other, joy in Christ, and joy in each other. Take these three very simple truths and color the way we look at our world. Help them to influence the way we see each other as brothers in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.